Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You've literally never worked a day in your life. And you're criticizing me for how I run my farm? How on, dare soft you? Hands, soft hands, get to You're it, the get trust fund kid on the school playground pushing all the regular kids around and, and making fun of their bagged lunches. Yeah, you're the guy who feeling. ignores the speed limit on your custom-made one-of-a-kind boat while the rest of us worry about the price of gas. Oh, my God. Making fun of the bag lunches. How many times do people make fun of me with my bag lunches? In the old days, when I come to the studio, I'd have an avocado and cheese sandwich. Everybody, DB, I get it. That's Darren Bailey. DB, I get it. Making fun of me with my bag lunches. Oh, he's talking about kids. Oh. <laughs> You're like 60 or whatever. Like, yeah. DB, but doesn't it count for old people? Can't old people still... This is a pressing question that some bulldog and reporter has to... Rich Miller... Shia Capos, Mark Maxwell, Flannery, uh, Darren uh, Bailey, uh, bag lunches for old people, yes or no? Hey, how about that? I've been off for one week, ladies and gentlemen. The Flannery imitation is strong as ever. Now, here, Ken Davis will ask him, bag lunch? <laughs> Sorry, Kenny, I went off the rails there a little bit. DB, I missed you. One week away, Dean. I miss Darren Bailey. Your Ben Jarofsky show. I'm back, too. For Tuesday, August 23rd, it's brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. Every now and again, what to do with pot. Where to buy it, where to smoke it. All that stuff. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. Yeah. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J O, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Just enjoying it. making random noises. Uh, <laughs> that was a big toke, man. <laughs> oh. Well, I don't, you don't have the camera working. I can't see you. It sounded like you fell or something. Uh, uh-oh. You smashed the fourth wall right there. I'm sort of going to wing it on this show, but no, you had to go break that wall. Forward slash Jarofsky. J O R A V is in victory, S K Y. It is Tuesday, August 23rd, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist. Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling us We're Back Tuesday, and here's why. Because we're back, both of us. Yes. Woo-woo. I'm back. I was gone for a week in paradise, chilling in my mind, smoking reefer. I haven't smoked in a while, but, you know, in my mind, I was doing that, just chilling. And Dr. D was gone even longer than me. For if you recall, the last three days of our regular shows, Dr. D was partying like a rock star down and all getting ready to be a papa when all that partying is going to be put in the rearview mirror. Oh yeah, that no news is no more beer. That, that news nothing. is out on the show. I forgot. 
<laughs> What's that? I said that news is out on the show. I forgot. Oh, yes. Yeah, that we let that cat out of the bag. Having a baby, everybody. Little, yes. Little daughter. Her name's going to be Denise. She's due oh, in October. In October, ladies and gentlemen. Let's give a big st- studio audience applause. I know some of our listeners don't like this. Uh, we kicked him out. Zorn was like, get rid of this. Get rid of All right, well, I'll do that. Yeah. Doctor's going to be a great papa. So while he's, you're going to, Chris Froggy, a little shout out to Dennis's uh, running mate, his partner from uh, Downstate Alton. Uh, a great uh, producer, Chris Froggy, sat in for uh, Dr. D last week. And Thanks, Chris. I guess the... Uh, when you're when you're on a paternity leave, uh, Chris will be sitting in as well. So you're going to hear Chris's a lovely voice, and uh, don't forget DJ Nate. He still helps out with the bonuses. So uh, got a great crew of producers. I'm a very lucky man, very very lucky indeed. All right. Uh, so I was in Michigan for a week, uh, chilling out and following obsessively following politics while I was in Michigan. No matter where I am, even if I'm chilling out, I'm following politics obsessively. And this phone, this little phone, is. Um, my connection to the world. By the way, John Nichols has already sent me two uh, texts. He wants to. Uh, oh, yeah, watch uh, this. There we go. John Nichols has joined us. John Nichols has joined us. I'm going to bring him on officially in a little while. John, I'm apologizing to you up front. The camera is not working. I, I was out of town for a week. I come back. The camera's not working, so you can't see my beautiful face. And what a face it is. It's a face that's perfect for an audio podcast. But I'm just going to uh, finish my thoughts before I bring John Nichols on officially. So I was in Michigan, obsessively following politics and following. Follow me on this, ladies and gentlemen. They're going to have a referendum in the state of Michigan on uh, whether abortion uh, ab- abortion rights. Uh, and uh, it overwhelming support by um, the voters of Michigan. The, I think they got close to 800,000 signatures to put it on the ballot. Uh, and so this, they put it on the ballot before Kansas. So I don't think MAGA and Republicans really understood the power of uh, this issue in this coming election. This is before they, they woke up. They always like to pretend John Nichols that they're not awake. They, they make fun of people who are awake. Uh, and yet they're very vigilant. I got to give them credit. They're very vigilant. They follow politics uh, very passionately. MAGA does. Uh, and so they woke up the day after Kansas and realized, uh Oh, this is a very potent issue. This could mean the end of Republican candidacies in the state of Michigan, because people will come to the polls. Listen, I'm upset that it takes an abortion referendum to get people to come to the polls to vote for pro-choice candidates uh, like Gretchen Whitmer, who's the uh, governor of Michigan. So that upsets me that that's what it takes. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. So what did they do? I don't know if you saw this, John Nichols. What did they do? They've got their lawyers in court arguing that the referendum should be bounced off the ballot because of spacing issues. I mean, this is something straight out of the Chicago machine. This is how, MAGA, you always say you're better than big city Democrats. You are taking a page right out of the book of Richard J. Daly, Richard M. Daly, and Rahm Emanuel. This is straight up Chicago politics, man. I'm going to, I can't beat you at the polls. So what I'm going to do is bounce you off the ballot on a technicality. Now, I don't know if it's going to work. It all depends on you know the votes of the, the the governing board that decides these issues, and it's as I understand, it's two Republicans, two Dems. So I'm working from the assumption. I don't know why I'm positive that it will fail, and the referendum will remain on the ballot, and it will probably, I hope, uh, launch uh, Gretchen Whitmer to a victory. 
and also the attorney, there's attorney general race. It's really important uh, in the state of Michigan. So the games mega plays, man, I saw it firsthand when I was up in Michigan last week. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on John Nichols. Uh, folks, uh, I know my listeners know the name, John Nichols, a political writer for the nation magazine. He's written, I just looked it up, John, about a dozen books. Uh, and uh, so it's a great honor to have you on the show. I want to shout out to Frank, listener Frank, who suggested uh, that uh, John come on the show and actually reached out uh, to John on uh, uh, Twitter, and one thing led to another, so here you are. So before we go uh, any further, I just want to take a moment uh, to uh, promote uh, your latest book, and I just want folks to know I have not read it, so what I'm going to do, John Nichols, is read your book, bring you back on the show. We'll do a whole 45 minutes or so. Uh, Corona's, coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers. Uh, if you will, just tell folks a little bit about the book. So if they get nothing out of this uh, interview, they will get that uh, the fact that this book is out and available and they can buy it. Go ahead. They'll get a lot out of this interview, Ben. But uh, um, yeah, the book is uh, something that I wrote during the, the kind of height of the pandemic and its aftermath. And look, I'm cynical. And so I bet from the start of the pandemic that rich people were going to try and use it to get richer and that powerful people were going to try and use it to get more powerful. And uh, so I started taking notes from the first days, gathering information, interviewing a lot of people. And of course, uh, it turned out that cynicism was right. Uh, Billionaires increased their wealth exponentially. Pharmaceutical companies cashed in at levels that are almost unimaginable, uh, making at at one point uh, $1,000 a second. Uh, in profits, and uh, and basically the the political elites manage things in a way that generally put them ahead. Rather than because look at all the people who ripped us off, robbed us, took advantage of us during the pandemic, charted up the impact of that, which is hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths, millions of people who got sick that didn't have to get sick and tens of millions of people who went through economic hardship they didn't have to go through. And um, I suggest at the end of the book that those people should be held to account for their profiteering. Hmm. All right. Well, I, as I said, I will uh, not attempt to interview you about a book I have not read. I will dutifully read the book and bring you back on the show. Uh, I've been reading book reviews about it uh, in preparation for you coming on the show in general. Uh, and it's something we should be discussing. Uh, we talk a little bit about this. I mentioned this. Miles Conflason comes on the show all the time. We take economic deep dives and things like this from these times. Uh, but this is a specific issue that we should pay more attention to. All right. John Nichols is based in the state of Wisconsin. He is a son of Wisconsin. Uh, he is uh, was born or raised in Union Grove, Wisconsin, where old timers from Chicago remember that's uh, where the drag racing ones, where the great ones run, 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 run. Uh, and yes, that Union Grove, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And as such, uh, despite that, he also is, he follows national uh, politics very closely, but he has an obsessive Ben Jarofsky, Chicago like passion and obsession with Wisconsin politics. So I have to start by doing a little Wisconsin talk. Uh, John, after I talked to you briefly this morning, I was reading the Washington Post and there was an article in the Washington Post. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Robin Voss who I would say Robert Voss is the Republican Michael Madigan, Wisconsin. We've talked about him a lot on the show. He's the maestro, the master of the General Assembly uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, he lost, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, Trump turned against him, and he was almost defeated uh, in a Republican primary by some rookie uh, that Trump had supported. And the, the Post story, uh, John, very revealing, uh, Robin Voss still won't say anything negative about 
Donald Trump. It's um, Donald Trump tried to take him out. He survived and he's still obsequious uh, to Donald Trump. So why don't you explain the dynamics of Donald Trump, MAGA uh, in Wisconsin and how it impacts even legendary politicians like Robin Voss? That's a very good question. And and focusing on boss is a very good way, I think, to get a a clear picture of just how powerful Donald Trump is within the Republican Party. And that's the important thing to begin with. It's Donald Trump's Republican Party. I mean, it doesn't belong to anybody else. DeSantis, all these other people are, are just pretenders to the throne. Trump owns this thing and he owns it pretty thoroughly. Uh, in Wisconsin, uh, he came in initially, and you'll appreciate this, he came in initially to uh, pick a candidate for governor. He had already endorsed Ron Johnson for the Senate. And in the governor's race, uh, he would have logically backed a woman named Rebecca Clayfish, who's very conservative, former lieutenant governor, close to Scott Walker, all this stuff. Uh, but somebody showed him a picture of Clayfish's daughter going to a homecoming dance with the son of a swing vote on the state Supreme Court, who the, the father uh, voted to reject Trump's efforts to overturn the Wisconsin election results. And so because of that high school dance picture, Trump rejected Rebecca Clayfish and endorsed a businessman who was running named Tim Michaels. And Trump became very engaged with the Michaels campaign and came into Wisconsin, participated a great deal with that. And intriguingly enough, uh, as he engaged more with Wisconsin politics, he became more and more mad at Robin Voss. Now, Robin Voss is the longtime senior Republican in the legislature, basically controls the legislature. They call him Boss Voss in Wisconsin. And uh, Voss thought that he had outsmarted Trump. When Trump wanted somebody to investigate the 2020 election, Voss appointed a guy named Michael Gableman, a disgraced former state Supreme Court justice who was such a lousy justice that he had to quit after one term. Well, they put Gableman in charge of this, and Trump got all excited about it. Of course, Voss had put Gableman in charge because he figured that Gableman would just you know, crash and burn the, the investigation because he's really inept, uh, and he basically did. But... Uh, Trump became increasingly agitated because um, as he's getting more and more engaged with Wisconsin politics, he's not seeing his theme overturn the 2020 election come into his head. And so when he came up on the weekend before the primary election to endorse Tim Michaels, his candidate for governor, and do a big rally in Waukesha, standard stuff, suddenly he pops an endorsement out for Voss's primary challenger a complete unknown, uh, a guy who had never run for office before, and a guy who was you know, running, you know, an okay, but, but somewhat bumbling campaign. And lo and behold, when primary day came, uh, Voss only got 51% of the vote. He came within a whisker, a couple hundred votes, of losing his seat. And you can attribute that to nothing except Donald Trump's endorsement of the challenger. Now, you said something to me that caught me off guard when we were chatting before we came in the air. So I'm going to ask you uh, to uh, share it with my listeners. Uh, And that is that there was a Democratic crossover uh, in that uh, Voss primary that may have enabled Voss to eke out. I think that he won by 260 votes. I think that's what I saw. Uh, So go into elaborate a bit on that, John. Sure. Uh, Boss is a bad player. He's been incredibly destructive uh, uh, in in the legislature, and Democrats have for years tried to get rid of him. 
But there are Democrats in that district who are so fearful of a total Trump takeover of the state Republican Party that um, I talked to folks who crossed over and voted Democrats who voted for Voss uh, in the primary. And um, and because it was so close, I think it's fair to say that there's a very good chance that Voss was saved by Democrats. Uh, And that's a complex situation because uh, on balance, I think that pretty much every Democrat in the state wants would like to see Robin Voss out of the legislature. By the same token, the state legislature is so radically gerrymandered, so overwhelmingly gerrymandered that uh, that there are Democrats who fear that there could be something worse than Robin Voss. And in fact, they might be right. Well, I don't know uh, how accurate that is in light of the article I just read in the Washington <laughs> Post, uh, where Voss, instead of a triumphant Voss, uh, it's what, a chastened Voss, if you follow yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so un-Chicago, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll share this with you and get your thoughts on this. In Chicago, if, uh, a ch- if a politician beats, quote-unquote, the machine, you know, if, like, the powers that be turn against him or her and he or she wins, they emerge p- pounding their chest, metaphorically speaking, like, I beat the machine. I'm unvanquished. The people spoke. That's a great Chicago tra- tradition. I could r- recite many different aldermen, for instance, and older women uh, who emerged from challenges by Richard Daly, et cetera, and so forth. Vost, it had a totally different reaction. He didn't want to be alienated from the MAGA and the Republican Party, so he immediately bowed down to Trump and said, I have more in common with him than I have disagree with him. Uh, Is there something different about Wisconsin than Chicago uh, that – that explains this different reaction or is it just the power, the overwhelming power of Donald Trump uh, with MAGA in Wisconsin? That's a really good question. And I think that, that the Wisconsin Republican party is evolving. And so um, historically, I think that, you know, in a situation like this, there's a good chance that Voss might've claimed his victory. And in many ways, Voss did remember he fired Michael Gableman, the guy that had been put in charge of investigating the election a day or so after the election. So um, it's not like he uh, bent to Trump's bidding there because Trump wanted Gableman to remain. But I think that, that at the end of the day, the transformation of the Republican party in Wisconsin is now so complete that when Voss took a deep breath after you know, a few days after getting beat, almost getting beat, I apologize. Uh, I think he came to the conclusion that there is no future, that he could see no future as a, a Republican leader opposing or challenging Donald Trump in Wisconsin. And so his his calculus is to try and at least walk the middle line, be acceptable to the, the Trump folks. And for him, uh, here's the dynamic. He doesn't have any road up. Uh, he's not going to lead the legislature. Your comparison to Madigan is a very appropriate comparison. So as a result, Voss finds himself in a situation where he has to hold that seat, his seat down in Western Racine County. And he just got a message that, you know, there but for a whisker, uh, he doesn't have control of that seat. He could well have lost it and might might easily lose it in the future. And so I think he is scrambling into the Trump camp as much as he can, trying to say things that that will uh, keep his head above water, hoping that the Trump 
fever breaks, right? Because the reality is that he'll face a challenge two years from now. He's he hasn't beaten this thing by any measure. He almost lost to it, and uh, but I do think that that's the dynamic that's taking hold in the Wisconsin Republican Party. It would have been different in the past, but uh, the fear of Trump is is really quite striking. You see it up and down the ballot, um, and you know. It, the funny thing is, I'll give you another example from the governor's race. Tim Michaels strongly endorsed, uh, or Tim Michaels was strongly endorsed by Trump. And yet, uh, Rebecca Clayfish, the person that Trump passed over, you know, all the time throughout the remainder of the campaign, even though she didn't have the endorsement, was talking about how great Trump was wow. and melding Trump's themes. Well, let me ask you this, and this is a question that I generally uh, pose uh, regarding Republicans in Illinois, uh, like Richard Urban, uh, who recently ran for governor as the quote-unquote moderate and got trounced. Uh, but he, he played the game where he stayed out of, uh, uh, of criticizing Trump. What if uh, Clayfish had just gone Liz, uh, Liz Cheney-like? and just uh, denounce Donald Trump and try to separate herself uh, from MAGA. She lost anyway. Yep. Okay. Uh, how do you think she would have fared uh, had she taken sort of like a, a profiles and courage type stand mm -hmm. against uh, MAGA in Wisconsin? I think she would have done a little better than Cheney. Um, because it, as we all know, Cheney's not from Wyoming. So that was sort of a problem for her there. They, they didn't know her or like her very much in the first place. Um, but, uh, I still think that at the end of the day, Clayfish probably, uh, she would have gotten fewer votes. Probably she probably would have ended up someplace in the range of, you know, mid thirties, uh, something like that. It, it wouldn't have been good. And also the, the truth of the matter is, that um, she wouldn't have had anybody advising her to do that uh, because the even the people who are not all on board with Trump in the Wisconsin Republican Party are at least semi on board with Trump. And they're just you just don't see strong opposition, except, by the way, at the grassroots. Uh, this is one interesting thing. And you got an, an intriguing measure of it over in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate. Most people didn't know that Ron Johnson even had an opponent primary his opponent didn't file a campaign finance report his opponent didn't have tv ads didn't have radio ads didn't do you know any real traditional campaigning was pretty much off radar and yet that opponent to ron johnson got uh, almost 17 percent of the vote over 110,000 votes so there are people who are you know republican voters in wisconsin who you know are clearly not on the trump Ron Johnson train, but uh, there's, they're not organized. They don't have power. Um, and they certainly don't have uh, really the ears of, of strategists or counselors or candidates at the upper levels of the Republican party. Uh, I'm going to keep it here with Wisconsin talk for a while, John. Uh, and uh, because I'm, my listeners, we, we were just south of Wisconsin and we have a mini obsession. Many Chicagoans go to Wisconsin to work on campaigns. Uh, and Wisconsin is such a pivotal state, such a, an important swing state. So let's just keep it with Wisconsin for a while. I'm finding this conversation fascinating and very illuminating. All right. So let's talk about 
what is uh, the danger? And that's, this is me speaking, not John Nichols, and I use the word danger. I worry very much about a fascism coming to America. Uh, so what is the danger of a complete MAGA takeover in Wisconsin uh, in November uh, with uh, in the governor's race, attorney general's race, Ron Johnson uh, winning re-election perhaps, uh, and holding on to the House and the Senate? Uh, and now Ron, Ron, uh, Voss, it being compliant. Uh, to Trump. So what is, how do you view the danger of a MAGA takeover in Wisconsin? I think it's very serious. And I think it's, it's uh, a very real threat. Wisconsin is a battleground state. It's evenly divided. And historically, Wisconsin has an intense pattern of rejection of the party in power in midterm elections. And so it is exceptionally rare for uh, Wisconsin to vote Democratic in a midterm election where there's a Democratic president. So right off the bat, um, I, I would put that on the table to say that the Republicans are competitive. They're, and polling says this. They are at least in the running for governor, for um, U.S. Senate, for other offices. Additionally, they have a, a radically gerrymandered state legislature, so they're going to hold the state assembly and state Senate. Um, and so what you're really looking at is that governor's race. And could a Republican be elected governor of Wisconsin? I think that Tony Evers, the incumbent Democratic governor, is in reasonably good shape, but it's certainly not beyond the realm of possibility. And if the Republicans took over in Wisconsin, they would take over as, uh, if not mega, at least mega curious, i.e. sympathetic to uh, to Trump and to, to those initiatives. It would be viewed as a victory for Trump and his his circle. Uh, first and foremost, they would go on a rampage as regards uh, the Wisconsin Election Commission, the, the, basically our state elections board. Um, and the the Republicans have talked about eliminating it, literally getting rid of it and moving the power over to the legislature, which they control, or uh, moving the power over to the office of secretary of state, which they currently don't control, but they're running a, a very strong candidate for the job and clearly going to put a lot of effort into trying to win it. Secretary of State in Wisconsin doesn't run elections now, but they have talked about re-empowering it. Bottom line is that if uh, the Republicans take charge of Wisconsin in November, they will use their power to alter, manipulate, twist, and turn election policies and practices to clear the way for Donald Trump in 2024. And remember, Donald Trump lost Wisconsin only by about 20,000 votes. So it doesn't take a, a lot of mangling of the processes uh, to you know, raise that prospect that he would be competitive in 2024. Obviously, there are other factors, but um, that's the simple reality. And frankly, that's not just a Wisconsin reality. That's a reality across the country. Uh, Donald Trump's control of the Republican Party is not a federal thing. It is a state thing. It is, it is much greater at the state level than it ever was in Washington. And in the states where Trump uh, has influence over and or control of Republican parties, one of the highest priorities is to mangle election laws in a way that would make a, a 2024 election run by Trump a much easier run. So that's that's what's on the table. Yeah, wow, that's a frightening thought. I, I, and I agree with you uh, about the his control at the state level as opposed to federal level. Uh, when I view when you were talking about Voss, I was thinking of Mitch McConnell, yeah, uh, and the kind of game he plays with Donald Trump. He won't even mention Trump's name anymore. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Trump is always bashing Mitch McConnell. Uh, all right. Uh, now on the other side, 
how will uh, abortion rights uh, play in Wisconsin? Uh, is there, I was talking before you came on or a bit briefly when you were on uh, about the referendum in Michigan, which is clearly got MAGA scared uh, because that'll bring people to the polls, uh, Democrats to the polls as the potential. And uh, we saw that what happened in Kansas. So how strong is abortion as an issue in the state of Wisconsin? It's huge. Um, Wisconsin is an exceptionally pro-choice state. Polling suggests that uh, close to two-thirds of Wisconsinites basically want abortion to be legal. Um, and uh, it, the, the sort of ra- radical anti-abortion stance that many Republicans take that would ban it in virtually all circumstances, uh, you only get a, a tiny portion of the electorate in Wisconsin that's even sympathetic to that uh, probably in the range of around 15, maybe 20%. So uh, Wisconsin's a pro-choice state, and the influence of that pro-choice stance has been felt in elections over the years. Uh, I think the Dobbs decision effectively re-elected Tony Evers in Wisconsin. Uh, Evers was running a good campaign, no doubt about that, um, and he's got a lot of money, so he's in a reasonably good position as a Democratic incumbent running for re-election. Uh, he's also in a state that usually re-elects governors, but he's running in a midterm, uh, and again, that Wisconsin pattern in midterms is very much against the party in power. So um, I think Evers was quite vulnerable until the Dobbs decision came down. My sense is that the Dobbs decision is going to have a huge impact on on the Wisconsin electorate. I think it's it's going to be very, very beneficial to Evers. Doesn't guarantee he will be elected, but it certainly puts him in a much, much stronger position. I think it may also reelect uh, Josh Call, who is the attorney general of Wisconsin and who has taken a very strongly pro-choice stance. Uh, Call was only narrowly elected in 2018 by about, you know, roughly 20,000 votes. Again, this very closely divided state. And so my sense is that abortion will be absolutely critical to his reelect. And where those votes are going to come from, intriguingly enough, is somewhat in suburban Milwaukee. And suburban Milwaukee, which was traditionally uh, just a boom area for Republicans, their, their, their heartlands, their stronghold, has been seen, especially in the close-in suburbs, a trending toward the Democrats. I think that will accelerate because of the abortion issue. And then you're also going to see uh, a portion, not a huge portion, but a portion of outstate Republicans, uh, especially on the, the western part of the state along the Mississippi River, who are, you know, have been pro-choice, uh, not always and not in every instance, but uh, uh, enough of them that I think you will see some crossover and I think you'll probably see uh, a decent break on the independence on that issue. So, yeah, is it is it big in Wisconsin? Absolutely. In fact, I would go so far as to say I think it will be one of the, if not the top issue that Wisconsin Democrats run on in in November. Wow. OK, so that's interesting. Let's just follow this, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so there's a, re- a Democratic governor. Uh, there is a Democratic attorney general. Mm-hmm. State went for Biden in 2020. Uh, one of the senators, Tammy Baldwin, is a Democrat. We'll get to Ron Johnson in a little bit. We're not af- ignoring him. We'll get to that. Uh, so clearly this is a state that uh, the Democrats are, to put it mildly, competitive, very competitive with. And yet, and yet, the legislature is dominated by Republicans. And that gets to the issue of gerrymandering. And I said this to John before he went in the air. I was going to raise this question uh, and make this point. I make this point all the time in the show. 
The greatest setback for the Democratic Party, in my humble opinion, in the 20th century, you could argue it's losing Gore, uh, Gore losing in 20, 2000. You could argue it's Donald Trump uh, defeating Hillary Clinton in 2016. I go for the 2010 midterms. Democrats fell asleep. They fell in love with Barack Obama. They just loved themselves so much because they were victorious in 2008. And use a sports metaphor, they took their eye off the ball and they got their clocks cleaned in state legislative races throughout the country. And the Republicans have been reaping the benefits of that for the last decade. And I don't know how, because they, because the Republicans took control of state houses, they drew the maps and they basically mapped Democrats, um, a, a majority party into minority uh, existence. That's my read. What are your thoughts, John Nichols? Absolutely. Look, I lived it. Um, in, in Wisconsin, historically, uh, we had a pretty solid Democratic advantage in presidential races. And while Republicans could win the governorship, they usually won it with relatively moderate, uh, very capable politicians like Tommy Thompson. Uh, what shifted in uh, 2010 was that the Republican Party came to power with a, a far better position than they had had at any time, you know, really in modern history. They had a very conservative, very tactical governor uh, who wasn't really interested. Like Th Thompson wanted to win with 80 percent of the vote. He wanted the whole state to like him. Scott Walker wasn't that way. Scott Walker was very glad to win with 51% of the vote. So they had a tactical Republican governor who uh, was very much focused on the party and on internal party dynamics. They had Boss, who we've talked about in the legislature. They had Scott Fitzgerald over in the state Senate, a similar type character. And so they weren't stupid. They knew they had dumb lucked into majorities in the assembly and the Senate and the governorship at the same time and with all of these tactical Republicans there. So what they focused on immediately was disempowering the Democrats. They did so in a whole bunch of ways. Very big attention was paid to the Wisconsin uprising, the effort to uh, Walker moved immediately to take away uh, collective bargaining rights from state employees. He also moved to disempower the trial lawyers and other groups. So basically every group that helped Democrats uh, Walker sought to disempower him. And they did those by narrow margins in the legislature, but they succeeded. And then they also, once they got redistricting, they drew districts that were, you know, over the top gerrymandered uh, on behalf of the Republicans. They went way farther in it um, with the, you know, the, the concept of jamming all the Democrats into very tight, overwhelmingly Democratic districts, and then creating a whole bunch of districts that were 55%, 60% Republican, uh, Republican enough to win. And that uh, tactic proved to be political genius. In uh, several cycles since then, the Democrats have won the majority of votes statewide for the state assembly and the state Senate, and yet they haven't moved a seat they haven't they haven't improved their position at all. They're still outnumbered in you know the makeup of the legislature almost two to one, and so that gerrymandering was incredibly effective. And then in combination with the disempowering of public employee unions and trial lawyers and other groups that traditionally back Democrats, and then finally with a lot of changes in election laws that that did make it at least somewhat harder to vote, the Republicans created a position where they were always competitive and often the winner 
always competitive in the legislative races, often the winner in statewide races. Now, in 2018, where there was a big Democratic surge, the Democrats were able to take back statewide offices because those weren't gerrymandered. But even there, they only did it by, in many cases, narrow margins. And so uh, Wisconsin remains this highly competitive state where Democrats can definitely win, but they can't win the legislative races because of that gerrymandering. All right. So uh, I'm going to ask you to give advice. Uh, And uh, I don't have an answer for this. So I hope you do. What advice would you give to the Democrats to how an election uh, in a state that's been gerrymandered against in a district that's been gerrymandered against them. So you say it's like 55% uh, Republican more in some, but yes, more, 60%, something like that. So what advice, tactical advice could you give to a Democrat to prevail in the, uh, in a district that's tilted in favor of a Republican? Well, look, uh, there's a couple, a couple pieces of advice. First and foremost, um, don't give up on the idea that you might yet overturn some of that gerrymandering. We have, the only reason the gerrymandering is held is because the state Supreme Court is currently a 4-3 conservative Republicans court, very aligned with the uh, state legislature. In 2023, we will have the most important election in Wisconsin, which is the election for an open seat on the state Supreme Court. One of the conservative seats comes up. If a progressive wins that seat, Uh, then you can challenge in the courts and you might be able to undo gerrymandering. So I think that's important to put on the table up front. That is actually a strategy that that may prevail and may work. Now, if you're a candidate running in a district right now, if you're if you're taking on that challenge, I I think my my counsel to you is that um, you've got to just do deep organizing. You got to go and find the people who don't vote because those districts are drawn based on the people who do vote. Right. Um, and especially in rural Wisconsin, which traditionally had a pretty good Democratic vote, rural rural Democrats held their own for a long time in Wisconsin. That collapsed when Hillary Clinton ran in 2016. She had no appeal or virtually no appeal in rural Wisconsin, fell down to about you know under a third of the vote. And and so I, I think the key is to to go into rural areas. That's where you're going to have your best chance of winning seats back. Uh, do so with a deep, deep rural strategy, not just talking about farmers, but also talking about small towns, keeping post offices open, keeping schools open, et cetera, et cetera. So you do that, that whole scenario. That's really vital. And then the, the second thing that I would, would recommend uh, in a situation like that is, um, you know, to go and find the people that don't vote. Uh, in most of our elections in Wisconsin, we have very high turnout. But in our rural areas, turnout isn't as good as it is in other places. And so that's an area where, to my mind, uh, you could actually win it back. But that would require something, Ben, that the Democratic Party has absolutely not figured out nationally and in the state of Wisconsin. And that is to how to run rural. And so, I mean, my advice is clear, uh, but I'm I'm not romantic about presuming that that it's necessarily going to prevail. Uh, and it is sound advice. And we bring a lot of uh, guests on the show, John, from rural areas in Illinois. This is a theme of the show, <laughs> finding a, uh, a Democrat. And uh, and there's surprisingly a large number of them. Oh, yeah, they're, they're there. Yeah, they're there. Uh, they're passionate and they're big supporters of my show. So God bless every one of them. But uh, 
you're right. Uh, and uh, it's really got to be like a very local election, a very local strategy. There's people from the community who understand the community. Uh, and well, actually, I think of Bernie Sanders, who came to uh, Vermont from Brooklyn and learned Vermont so well that he's now uh, unbeatable uh, in Vermont. Uh, the legendary Richard Steele uh, is waiting. He's joined us. We're going to bring him on. But I'm not done with John Nichols yet because there's one last uh, question I have to ask you about Wisconsin, and that is Ron Johnson. Sure. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I try to be magnanimous uh, when I view people of the other political persuasion, but it's really hard. Uh, with Ron Johnson, he just seems to me to be out of his freaking mind uh, half the time with some, with the things he says, uh, openly racist uh, and um, like a fossil of a human being. And yet he's the senator uh, from the state of Wisconsin. So help me, John Nichols. Uh, is he beatable uh, in this next uh, election? Go ahead. OK, first and foremost, I am not going to go on for too long uh, because I don't want to get in the way of the legendary Richard Steele. Um, and, um, and my, my regard for people that know more for me is no more than me is, is large. And so I'm not going to mess with that. Uh, and I will also note that you uh, very generously offered me a chance to come back on the show and I would highly recommend that we do a full show on Ron Johnson, uh, just wall to wall, Ron Johnson, uh, because it's an endless opportunity, but I will give you this, um, you know, tidbit, if you will. Uh, Ron Johnson is uh, an incompetent. I mean, uh, at just about everything. He married into money, uh, and then he didn't make that much money, right? I mean, it's sort of like he had everything set up for him, uh, but but he wasn't overly successful. And um, his family that he married into was so delighted to get him out of business, get get rid of him, that they actually funded his campaign for the U.S. Senate. They're like, please go to Washington, be incompetent there. Yeah. And uh, and it succeeded because he was running in 2010. It was a Republican wave year, and he prevailed. When he ran for re-election in 16, uh, still the vast majority of Wisconsin said they didn't know who he was. Uh, he was such a low-profile, nothing senator. Um, but again, that was the year of the of the Trump wave in Wisconsin, and it had some serious impact. And the Democrats made some errors that year as well. And so Johnson got reelected. This is the first election campaign in which people know Ron Johnson, they know how he operates, and um, they, they understand the, the danger, I think, of, of keeping this guy in the Senate because he is such a bad player, such a conspiracy theorist, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had a poll come out, the very best poll in Wisconsin, the Marquette poll, uh, which was released uh, just last week. And it showed that Mandela Barnes, the Democratic nominee against Ron Johnson, is up by seven points. Wow. Uh, over 50%, uh, actually leading among independents. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you it's going to be an easy race. I think it'll be a hard race. There's no doubt of that. But I do think that that there's a very good chance that this is the year when Wisconsinites finally get rid of Ron Johnson, who is the second most horrible senator in Wisconsin history, right after Joe McCarthy. <laughs> Number two, Ron. <laughs> well, but he's coming up. I mean, it, I, I've actually argued at some points, there are some days where I will put him ahead of McCarthy. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be too too glib about the, yeah, the bad no. news of the past. 
<laughs> All right, I'm going to let you go, John Nichols. I'll definitely bring you back. We're going to do a run. We already figured out our shows. We're going to do, <laughs> do a show about uh, coronavirus criminals. We're going to do a show about Ron Johnson. And then you, we share a passion for Henry Wallace. Yes. Uh, that's a book he wrote, uh, I think, about three years ago or so. And so we'll probably do a show about that. Uh, because you're probably the only guy I know in my political universe who shares my passion for Henry Wallace. I come from a, a long line of old lefties. And uh, so I could do Henry Wallace for as long as you want to talk about the man. Um, uh, right. But I, again, I am not getting in the way of the legendary Richard Steele. No. Uh, and uh, <laughs> honoring, honoring him and honoring you and, and thanking you for, for having me on the show. What a pleasure. Yes, it was a pleasure. We'll bring him back real soon. That's great. John Nichols from The Nation magazine. Now, the, yes, the legendary, the real deal, Richard Steele, who's standing by. And Richard, I can see you. You can't see me. I have no explanation as to why my camera isn't working. I humbly apologize. I know that one of the great uh, treats of being on the Ben Jarofsky show is to see my beautiful face. Uh, <laughs> and so now all you see is a glowing bee. bee wee, wee, bee wee, wee. Uh, so uh, welcome can you, back. Can you? Can you hear me? Oh yeah, you sound great. Oh, you sound, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was a little Just concerned because Richard had a cold, has a cold. He's playing in pain today, and a lot of love for Richard Steele, the real deal, legendary. It's good to be here. Yes, it's good to be here in, indeed. Uh, so, Richard, we have a and whole. By the way, before yeah. you, before you get started, <laughs> the Ron Johnson thing—that's funny. <laughs> no, it is, uh, and, and actually, it's not funny. It's pitiful, but. But uh, I like that discussion. It was really, really interesting. Yeah, it was. John Nichols, fascinating guy. Uh, he is born and raised in Wisconsin, so uh, he's got a uh, like Wisconsin politics come to him like Chicago politics comes to you and me. You know what I mean? Like he's just so saturated in it that he loves talking Wisconsin politics. But he's really largely known, I think, for his national coverage for the nation, uh, but I like doing the Wisconsin deep dives. Very important uh, midterm election in Wisconsin. I don't want to minimize it. Richard, we had all these things to talk about, and then I saw this article. I, I sent it to you. i got to ask you about it. Is there a dumber uh, senatorial candidate uh, in America Day than Herschel Walker? Now, I, I know a lot of Herschel Walker fans can get mad at me for saying that, but here we go. This article, this headline, I sent it to you. Like Richard, for real. Herschel Walker, criticizing climate law, asks, quote, don't we have enough trees around here? <laughs> I mean, I'm no. laughing. Make a win. I shouldn't laugh. But help me, Richard. Like, what's the mindset of a voter in Georgia that they would think Richard, that they would think Herschel Walker would be a guy they want to be senator? You know, the only thing I can think of, of then is that when he makes statements like that and some of the really stupid things he says, I think there might be some people who, who might say to themselves, maybe there's a hidden message behind what he's saying because he, nobody could be that stupid running for an office like that. And so, I mean, it's really ridiculous. So, and I think, you know, uh, at this point, the Republicans have at least uh, three people running for, <clears throat> for the seat in the Senate that are really bad candidates. But Herschel Walker is by far the worst uh, you know, he was, and he hasn't done any debate. I doubt if he's done his debate. I don't think he'll debate. I, 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 he's, he's been, he's been asked to debate on several occasions. And, uh, his answer was, uh, well, I'm busy campaigning. Really? <laughs> okay. Uh, so I don't know. I, I just, what amazes me and it probably amazes you too, is that 
at this point in the polls, he's got people who support him. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, his his uh, opponent is ahead of him, but there are a number of people who support him. And I, I don't, I mean, I understand people being, uh, you know, native Georgians and saying, well, the guy's a football hero and, you know, he's, he's, he, he's from Georgia and he grew up here. So, uh, I'll support him on that basis, but that should only be about 10%, I think. So I'm amazed. I am truly amazed. Well, I, uh, I guess I shouldn't be so amazed uh, based on a, a, another essay that you sent me in preparation for coming on the show. Usually I give the homework out. Uh, Richard Steele sent me a homework assignment, uh, and it was an essay uh, from Medium.com by Rosalind Morris, uh, and it's the cult of Trump. It's not the man. It's the racism. And I'm going to read the opening uh, from this uh, essay. And then, uh, Richard, I would love for you to elaborate a little bit with your thoughts. And then we'll bring Herschel Walker. Uh, So here's the lead. Trump's followers are not brainwashed and they're not delusional. They are blinded by hatred and they are 100% responsible for the choices they make. It is their love for white supremacy and white privilege that causes them to blindly follow their leader, Donald Trump. They also are not radicalized. How so? when there is absolutely nothing radical about American racism or sexism, especially under the guise of Christianity. Wow. Do you agree with that sentiment? Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things I think she mentioned in that write-up, in that uh, assessment, is that there is a, you know, part of this is a backlash to having a black president for eight years. Yeah. Uh, there were people who that... It, in, in that entire eight years, there were people who were grum, grumbling and moaning and saying, this is awful. Even though he turned out to be a pretty decent president, they and a great family and, you know, uh, a credible guy who didn't get any get into any uh, scandals and all of that, they dismissed all of that and said, but he was black. You know, So um, that has been uh, settling in on people for the last, you know, right before this election, uh, that they just, just couldn't stand it. It was just awful. And... Uh, and, you know, they took the position that with a black president, the country was going down the tubes and, and this whole uh, theory about the country turning over in terms of its population um, and white people being in the minority at some point, brown people, brown and black people being in the, in the majority. And I think uh, the fact that he was president for eight years, uh, you know, pushed, helped push that theory ahead. And so it's a, black, it's a backlash. And, he, and I think the article is right. Uh, it, you know, pushed. I mean, Trump just came along at a time when here's a guy with no scruples, no morals, uh, no boundaries, who they could support, and uh, he's a guy who would do no matter he would do anything. I mean, he he had no limits, and so uh, he was the perfect guy for what they wanted. It could have been anybody who was like that. And, you know, they just happened to be Trump, and he was perfect for that role, and so you know he was chosen by them. And he had loved it because, you know, he loves the attention. And he was a guy who he thought his uh, his face should be on, uh, uh, you know, the, the face is on Mount Rushmore, which is, come on, are you serious, really? Uh, and so, you know, that's, and they're willing to accept that. All the things that he does, they're overlooking all of that. doesn't matter he made fun of, uh, 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 he made fun of uh, military veterans. He made fun of disabled reporters. Uh, he assaulted women, all of that stuff. I mean, a lot of people thought after the, you know, the, uh, the uh, piece came up uh, where he was seen saying to the reporter, 
I think it was Entertainment Tonight where he was saying, you know, like, you know, women, are, you know, they'll, they'll love you. When you're a celebrity, all you got to do is grab them out of, you know, by, yeah. <laughs> by the genitals. And everybody thought, okay, this is it. This is, you know, I mean, he's through yeah. when he was running. And it didn't knock him off. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, what's her name who was his closest, closest, uh, closest advisor? Kellyanne uh, Conway. Conway. Kellyanne Conway. Uh, don't like her. Don't respect her. But, I, you know, I, I recognize her genius. She was somebody who stepped in. And she put a twist on it. I mean, he was really, I think, in trouble at that point. Uh, even with the people who love him, they didn't love him like that yet. But she came in and she somehow, you know, she talked about, uh, well, she made up words <laughs> to suit him, that, that that suited him and said to his followers, you know, this is what you should be looking at. She did a great job with that. And then the other thing is, this is just a rumor. I don't know if you heard this and I don't know how true it is, but it was said that Melania was about ready to, uh, after he was caught on tape doing that and saying that, and, you know, when she came out later and said, Oh, that's boys. That's only boys talk. Blah, 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 blah. But I was told that she, uh, negotiated, uh, a better possible settlement. Uh, uh, you know, if there's a divorce, I mean, she, you know, obviously they had one, but probably had its limitations, but I understand her lawyers went back in and she insisted on that. So you want me to be quiet. This is what you need to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so and I believe that, you know what I mean? Because she's, she's no angel, you know what I mean? Well, she's no a, fool. Here's, yeah. No fool. Here's a, here's, a, here's a first lady whose booty we've seen, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> when she was modeling. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, but I think, yeah, I think in the overall, I think that people, the article, the, the essay that you read is tremendously on target. Well, they don't care what he does. Look, yeah. I remember uh, during the January 6th hearings, they were talking to, I think, the guy who's a secretary of state for uh, Georgia. And he was saying, I think he was the one who said that Trump has to cut this out. Somebody's going to die. Is that, that he's the one I think that said that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, during, on the January 6th hearings, he was saying that there were people that he knows well, one lawyer who's a very good friend of his, and uh, when they were discussing about whether or not the election was stolen, he would say to him point by point, and by the way, he's still a supporter of Trump, but he would say to this guy, listen, there were like over 60 cases in the court, and the, the Trump people lost them all. The Supreme Court decided to take a pass on it. Uh, there was no proof. All the investigations showed that it was, uh, you know, an honest election. And, you know, everybody was watching that election because of, you know, who it was and what it was. And, you know, he said that he said his lawyer friend said to him, bright guy, intelligent guy, said to him, yeah, I, I, I hear all that. And, I, and I, I agree with what you said. But in my heart, yeah. I think it was stolen. What do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I, I, and I'll tell you this. Uh, when I hear that. It, I have an echo of a refrain I get from a lot of losing candidates in Chicago. And so that's a common refrain uh, after a, a tough loss. 
And Richard Steele, people I don't know, is a uh, diehard basketball fan as I am, and we're always exchanging uh, texts uh, during games. And when my beloved Bulls lose a close game, Richard Steele, I generally blame the referees and say it was stolen. And I'll go so far as to say Adam Silver had something against my beloved Bulls uh, and so forth. Uh, So there's a natural tendency. It's hard to accept loss. You go through those different phases of – of of dealing with loss, you know, and one of them is denial. And um, in Chicago politics, it's common. If you lose, you blame the machine. There hasn't been a Chicago machine in this city <laughs> since, I don't know, man. It's been a long time since there's been a traditional daily uh, machine in this town. Yeah, that's uh, true. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. They dismantle patronage, Richard. You know this. You, you follow this stuff. That end of the machine, you know. And uh, but still, people say the machine. So there's just a what I've never seen is Chicagoans, other than grumbling and griping about how they lost the machine, I've never seen them like rise up as one and just officially accept a platform that denies they lost. You know, they may grumble in private and complain to their friends, but (laughs) what MAGA is doing now is making this a key plank in their platform that the election was stolen. And if you don't subscribe to it, you won't get elected. And so, you know, you got to duck and dodge and dance around. So So here's my question about that. Do you think that, I mean, what percentage of people do you think that are running for office on the the MAGA people that are running for office? uh, What percentage of people, maybe not an exact percentage, but just generally speaking, people who really believe that the election was stolen and all the rhetoric that goes with it, uh, and people who really don't believe that, but it's, it's a winning proposition if you're on the ticket and you're a MAGA supporter, and the more aggressive you are about being a MAGA supporter, um, the likelihood of you winning at this point in time, depending on what state you live in, is greater. And so, as, as I said to you earlier, when you're, when you're running for a congressional seat, listen, there are people who have very, some of them have very little experience. Uh, some of them are sort of middle-income guys you get $175,000 when you're a congressman and, and you get an, ex, 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 an extensive um, expense uh, account. You know what I mean? So I don't, I just wonder what you think about that in terms of people who are running what they actually believe or don't believe. I, I uh, we were just talking about this with John Nichols, uh, the, uh, the leader of this, the Republicans in this general assembly in Wisconsin, a man named Robert Vaugh, Robin Voss, who's equivalent of Mike Madigan, only from as a Republican standpoint, a master of the legislative process. Uh, he dared to like criticize Trump just a bit. Trump slapped him. He barely won re-election. Okay, uh, now he's uh, you know going back uh, with his uh, you know hat in hand to Trump, trying to win him back. So I think that for most quote-unquote pragmatic Republicans, uh, it's a matter of convenience. I don't think they believe it. And this reminds me, if you really want to get MAGA mad, Richard, uh, draw this analogy, because I've said this many times in the show, I may have said it to you. The OJ case. Chris Rock did a very funny bit, which I'm not sure you've seen, but I urge you to check it out on uh, YouTube, about... uh, Black people talking about OJ's uh, acquittal when white people aren't around. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course he did it. Of course he did it. Who else did it? You know what I mean? It was like that. But publicly, well, there's racism, et cetera, and so forth. 
And I view MAGA as the same way. MAGA won't admit openly what they feel privately. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because sure, sure. Liz Cheney has said in talking to other people on the Hill, uh, they will. They say they applaud her for doing what she's doing, and uh, but they don't say they don't say anything about. I mean, they're not going to tell their true feelings. She, she wouldn't. Obviously, she's not going to say who they were, but she said, well, you know, she's been there and she knows uh, everybody and she had a pretty powerful position. But she was saying, because she knows a lot, of, I mean, she's a conservative Republican. She's voted on all the uh, Republican uh, issues, including uh, against the voting rights bill and everything else. But but to her credit, uh, she, you know, th- th- it had to stop here with, a, you know, with the demise possibly of the, do- yeah. of the uh, democracy. Um but yeah, the, <laughs> according you know, like reflect on Chris, reflecting on Chris Rock's thing. I will tell you this: you can and you can ask Monroe about this too, because he had this experience. He told me at the trip when that verdict came down. I was working at WBEZ, and uh, there weren't that many African Americans at BEZ in the newsroom area. And uh, there was one guy named Claude Cunningham who was this, he was a uh, systems guy. I mean, he facilities guy, rather. So he took care of it. He's been, he'd been there a very long time. He, had, he We used to communicate a lot. So there were a few others. So, you know, public radio had always said, you know, that was kind of a sordid story and they didn't want to kind of deal with that. And when they did deal with it, they did a, a technical thing on the evidence and how it was gathered. And, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't go into the, to the real swami stuff, right? Swami stuff. So, uh, but when the deal went down about the and the day that the verdict was announced, everybody in the newsroom was standing in front of the television to watch the verdict. Yeah. And when the verdict came down, uh, <laughs> Claude and I and a, another member who was black, we went into another room because we were saying, "Yes, we finally won one!" Right? And the you know, people in the newsroom were saying, "Wow, had to come to that verdict." You know, but, you know, we were and we weren't saying we thought he was innocent. We were just saying that the justice system has been so unfair that uh, you know, amazingly, we won one. Yeah. And Monroe can tell you the same story about the Tribune. You know, he told me about that story that, uh, you know, you had to you had to be real cool about your response to that in that setting. So, yeah. no, uh, no, man, true. listen, Johnny Cochran. Oh, I know. I want we, we you know, Richard, when we get talking, we talk, now we're on this tangent, which we hadn't planned. But I'm just going to say, if I was I always said this, if I'm ever in trouble well, he's passed, I'm calling Johnny Cochran because that was brilliant tactics. He put racism on the uh, on trial. OJ wasn't the defendant. Racism was the defendant. And, Absolutely. And it was a brilliant tactic. It it, it got OJ free. Uh, we all know he did it. But, I mean, wh- it's like you said, like, wow, <laughs> we win one. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Cochran was, a re- Cochran was a really nice guy. He came into Chicago several times. One time he came in uh, about his book, and I interviewed him at WBEZ, so uh, I told my son, who was in law school at that point, that I'm about to interview Johnny Cochran. So he took a day off from uh, uh, school and came to Chicago. He was going to uh, uh, NIU, and uh, he missed the class because he said, I, you know, I want to meet him. And so I said, okay, that's cool. So he came down to the station, and he sat in the studio 
while I interviewed Johnny Cochran and he met him and all of that. And in Cochran's responses to various questions, we were talking about the future. Uh, and he said, what we need are young lawyers uh, who are really, uh, you know, dedicated to the profession and uh, to justice. You know, like you're like your son here who's in law school. Oh, listen, my son was so thrilled. He didn't know what to do. When he back when he went back to law school, he told him, I met Johnny Cochran, man, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, so, uh, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And uh, so the issue of whether OJ did or not is sec- of secondary, clearly. Uh, and Complete, uh, I'll Completely. Never, completely. I'll never forget when that, that uh, verdict came down and just, white people were so so mad and so angry and so hurt and, and it's like they finally come face to face with an injustice you know and it was i'm like where have you guys been sleeping um so all right enough uh on johnny cochran let's go back to where i was meaning to i was leading up with my question uh and that is so when you think about that quote from the essay that you sent me uh about the race white supremacy motivations of so many voters uh how do you think herschel walker fits into this so trump has promoted him advanced him he's now the candidate uh in georgia largely because donald trump endorsed him and put him up to go you know rehearsal walker played for a football team in the 80s owned by trump uh he's a black man so if the motivating force behind uh maga and to a large degree is uh white racism or white supremacy or uh, anger at the changes they see in society. Uh, why is Herschel Walker an acceptable candidate? He's a non-threatening black man from Georgia. And uh, you know, he's not particularly sophisticated. So uh, on the one end, people on the low end of the uh, income spectrum are not threatened by him. He's like a good old country boy, even though he's black. Uh, on the other hand, uh, at the top end of the spectrum, he's not that smart, and so we can get him to do whatever we need him to do if he wins. And I think that, I mean, it's a short summation of what I think it's all about. Yeah, I think you're on to something there. I, I don't think he's going to win. Uh, I don't either. I don't. But the fact that he's gotten as many supporters as he has is scary. Yeah. I mean, these are people who know who he is. They've heard him speak. They know he has. He doesn't have a clue, and they were. They're still willing to, um, according to the polls, give him some support. But I think that those. I think the reasons are the ones I just stated. He is. A, he's a non-threatening uh, black man who was a football hero. You know how football is 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 big in Georgia. You know what I mean? Big in a lot of states. But he's a hero in that in that aspect, and he's not a hero who stands for anything. And you know, uh, a hero that black people can say. You know, uh, he's our guy. Nah, none of that. So on the one hand, again, he's, uh, you know, he's 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 not very bright. He's a country boy, and uh, the fact of the matter is, if he get if he got in, he's in, he's easily manipulated because he yeah. does, he doesn't know a thing, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so all you gotta do is pull his strings, and you know he'll do whatever. You know, yeah. so then he feels like owes oh, Donald Trump too. You know. There are a lot of photos with he and Trump together, and you know Trump has endorsed him and all of that. So I think that's the bottom line. I mean, he's just he's terrible. But what you know, can I tell you? You know, he's got he has he's got kids who didn't it didn't acknowledge, and then he uh, 
Yeah. He, uh, you know, said some negative things about uh, black men who don't care, take care of the children. Then you find out he's got these these children who uh, he doesn't have very much contact with. So he made a response to that the other day and said, "Well, you know, I I, I, I am I do contact my my children and and uh, and uh, I won't let the reporters uh, use my children to to beat me up." <laughs> so I, yeah, uh, I saw that. Yeah, I was yeah, like, "What?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Herschel Walker, the former uh, law enforcement guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So uh, never was in law enforcement ever. No. Yeah, he made that up too. Uh, and uh, all right, let's close. Let's uh, close it with uh, getting a, lo- a little local uh, conversation. Uh, okay. This, this one uh, I didn't prepare you for in any way. Uh, listener Frank texted this to me uh, right before I came on the show, and so uh, I have to share it with someone. So I'm going to share it with you. Uh, there's a referendum on the ballot uh, in some downstate uh, precincts uh, in some counties uh, on whether. Uh, the uh, southern portion of Illinois should secede from Chicago, essentially, and come up with a second state. Uh, they, want, they don't want anything to do with Chicago. Uh, and uh, the Republican candidate for governor, uh, Darren Bailey, uh, was once a, uh, was a member of a block of legislators who endorsed uh, seceding from Chicago, if you will, of forming a, a Republican state, a uh, downstate uh, in Illinois, or splitting Illinois into two. Uh, he's kind of backing away from that right now because he needs votes in Chicago <laughs> if he's going to prevail, uh, which, and he's also uh, got a little trouble because he calls his a propensity for calling Chicago a hellhole. Uh, and then he does some interesting ducking and dodging and dancing. Uh, I, I call him DB Travolta because he's quick on his feet when it comes to ducking. <laughs> so you just general thoughts about what's going on here, Richard Steele, with these people who live downstate wanting nothing to do with Chicago. Well, they think they live in Texas because, you know, uh, Texas has proposed the same thing, <laughs> secede from the union and be, uh, you know, an independent state uh, not, I mean, this is, and they haven't said they want to be Republican. They just say they want to be on their own. Uh, so that kind of thinking is not novel. But the idea, I, and I guess because in Illinois, there's such a distinct separation between uh, Democrats in the city and Republicans downstate. I was, I was amazing. I was amazed that uh, the uh, the guy who ran, the guy from uh, from. Uh, uh, what's his? He ran. He ran. He ran in the primary and uh, barely beat him out. Black guy, Richard, Richard Irvin. And I was. I was. I was kind of figure out. Trying to figure out why did he do that? Because uh, I. I just didn't totally understand that. I mean, he couldn't. He. He. He had a mixed record. He actually was a Democrat before, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I thought, well, white downstaters are not going to be that thrilled about him. I think I mentioned this before. You, you you mentioned to me that you reminded me about Roland Burris, but Roland Burris, you know, had a had a had a track record uh, down state politics, and people did kind of like him, and they voted for him. Yeah. Richard Irvin, who, for all purposes, <laughs> is a recovering Democrat, uh, I, I didn't understand that. But the move made by the people that ballot referendum. Uh, I think is just a, a sign of how divided we are as a people, and especially in the state of Illinois. Um, and I, it doesn't do anything. It just makes a statement. That's never going to happen. 
but it does make a statement. And based on the atmosphere we're in now with Trump, uh, something like that will get some support for a sufficient amount of people to to make a statement. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to do anything, you know, just <laughs> secede from the state right, you know, or uh, no, that's not going to happen. I, uh, I, I understand the comparison between Roland Burris and uh, Richard Irvin, but uh, I, uh, I'm not. I'm never going to go there. Roland Burr's. Uh, I had my difference with with him on, on many issues down through the years, but he was a uh, a seasoned politician. Uh, oh, no question. Very smart practitioner of the game of politics. Uh, he's from Centralia, downstate, so that's right, where he's right. Are. Uh, and uh, I never thought he sold out on issues except for on the death penalty issue, which really upset me. But. Uh, I always thought he got unfairly trashed at the end. I thought that was really unfair. What what uh, what people did to him after you know Bukovic appointed him senator. I don't know if you recall that they made fun of him, mocked him. Yeah, I do, but I, I don't. I don't necessarily agree that. I think that was a, like a really. It, it, it looked like uh, I want to be senator so badly that you know uh, I'll take the criticism and I'll take everything that goes along with that, just so that I can you know. Uh, I can fill the seat and say that I was senator because he only had like two years of thinking and he didn't, yes. you know, how much can you accomplish in two years? Not very much, uh, you know? And so I, I just, I would question that. I agree with what you said about him uh, prior to that, but when he decided to do that, I, I just thought that was kind of shady. Well, it was, it was, uh, it, it, it set him up for a lot of mockery. Uh, I should bring him on the show. He's uh, he's a sharp guy. And, oh, I know uh, his, I know him. Name. I, I yeah. know him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I know you must have had him on and shows up dozens of times. Actually, absolutely, I have. You know what I mean? And so he is a smart guy. Um, and, you know, I respect his political acumen, but that I still have a problem with him. You know, it just looks so shady. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna take that seat, and especially Blagojevich being the one who, uh, you know, made that decision. You know, I, how I feel about Blagojevich is a whole another kind of thing. But uh, all right, uh, we it, I'm going to uh, segue into one final uh, piece of conversation that I didn't tell you I was going to do by saying this. I believe uh, Roland Burris lives in the house in Chatham that Mahalia Jackson used to live in. I believe. I think I read that somewhere. Uh, Richard, I think I did too. Yeah, yeah, I think I read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is an uh, interesting piece of Chicago history. And then I'll, I'll close uh, with uh, just raising this. Uh, the Chicago Jazz Festival is coming up. And uh, I know a lot of listeners think of Richard Steele as a WBEZ guy, a newsman on WBEZ for many years. He had a jazz show. The man knows jazz really well, way better than I do. Uh, and... Uh, so, Richard, uh, are you going to be making it out to the jazz festival this year? Uh, there any- yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I might even go uh, on that uh, that uh, jazz tour they do. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten what the date is where this bus goes around the different clubs, you know, and spends like a, a half hour there listening to the music, and then they, you know, they move on to another club. I think they cover about maybe six jazz clubs in Chicago, and this is a uh, prelude to the Chicago Jazz Festival. I've really never done that because I didn't myself as, you know, kind of one of the fans getting on the bus and doing that. But now that I'm not in the in the spotlight anymore, and um, I, obviously I still love jazz, so I'm considering 
considering doing that, you know, because, uh, yeah, I plan to go out to the Jazz Fest, but, uh, you know, Ben, I don't have the mobility that I used to have in terms of getting around, you know, so I, uh, you know, I turned 80 in January and I'm, you know, I'm slower (laughs) and it just doesn't, everything doesn't work as well. So, but I am going to come out and I'm, I'm involved with two other festivals too. The Hyde Park Jazz Festival, I've been an MC for the last 16 years during its entire existence. And uh, it's been one of the more successful jazz fests in Chicago. And uh, also the Hyde Park Jazz Festival. No, I'm sorry, the Inglewood uh, uh, Jazz Festival, which I'm involved with, too. So I'm still connected to that, you know. So, Richard, do you still listen to jazz or are you totally a news guy? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I listen to WDCB and uh, in the College of the Pay Station. Yeah. Dan Bender, who's the boss over there, he and I used to work together at BEZ. Great guy. Is doing a great job with the music, and I also listen on satellite radio. Uh, and there's the the jazz station is absolutely uh, incredible. And the guy who runs it used to be here in Chicago uh, at WNUA back in the day. Was it NUA? Uh, yeah, I think it was WNUA. It, Richard, you said that, and all I heard was WNUA. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, he was there for a long time. It was uh, yeah. did, I think he was a music director, but he's entirely uh, directing. Uh, he's the program director at this satellite music station, and his I mean, this guy's traveled everywhere. Never thought that would happen for him. He's been to every jazz festival in and out of the country. He was even in Russia when uh, uh, when they so there's a jazz jazz appreciation month in June every year, mm. and one year. They celebrated a special thing in Russia, and he went and saw that. Before we leave, I have one other thing I wanted to mention since I thought about Russia. What do you think about Dennis Rodman oh. saying that he's going he's gonna to go to Russia and try to get uh, Brittany Ryder uh, okay. released because he's got a relationship with Putin because he was there once before yeah. at Putin's invitation? What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it did, I don't know if you remember when he went to North Korea. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm, I'm going to start this off by saying I'm, I'm biased. I remain a big fan of Dennis Rodman. And I was a fan of Dennis Rodman. Richard, this is the absolute truth. When he played for the Pistons and everyone in Chicago hated him, there was just something about Dennis Rodman. I'd never seen a player play with that kind of spirit, that kind of energy. He was such a classic underdog. He pulled himself up from some really dispiriting, depressing beginnings when it was abandonment by parents. Uh, and he just turned himself into one of the greatest uh, offensive, excuse me, uh, power forwards in the history of the game. And he will, I will always love Dennis Rodman. So it's kind of like he can do no wrong. He hasn't gone. If he came out for Trump, that might break <laughs> for me. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. He, I got no problem with him trying to get Brittany Griner out. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. I want Brittany Griner yeah. out of that jail. She's been <laughs> obviously unfairly. So I'm not going to sit there and go, oh, he's in, you know, no, it's, it's an invasion of you know, <laughs> protocol. No, if he can work. Listen, so I applauded it. I, I'm like, go for it, Dennis. You know, I hope it works. And so I hope it works. I, I doubt it'll work. I think that. Um, it's, it's political, so it's not going to work. But, yeah. uh, but I think it, it brings a lot of, uh, you know, light to the subject. Uh, the other thing about Dennis Rodman, uh, you know, I, I too respect him as a player. I mean, he, how many people that are, I think he was like six, four or something. He wasn't that tall, but how many people at that height averaged 
when he was with the Bulls. Oh. 12, 13 rebounds a game. Who does that? Richard, you know he, I mean? he, first of all, I think it was 6'8". But uh, I don't think it was that tall. I don't think it was six eight. We'll check it out. But I don't all think right, you know what? Eight. We're gonna do one of our favorite things where I look it up while we're on the air. Hold on, this is gonna see who's right: Richard Steele or Ben Jarofsky. Lunch. The loser has to buy the winner lunch at the restaurant. The winner's choice. All right. Okay. Here I'll, we go. I'll go for that. All right. Uh, and then uh, you know Monroe is gonna want to be in on that one. All right. Hold on one second. Uh, Dennis Rodman is. Come on, help me out here. Uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, is all right. Here we go. Six foot seven inches tall. Uh, six foot okay, seven. Well, but you know what? I will call it a split because they usually add yeah. a couple inches to somebody, so he's probably only about six five. All right, so <laughs> right. we'll call it a split. But uh, he had, he, I mean, now we're moving to sports, but he had a year where I think he averaged over 20 rebounds a game. Uh, yeah, was, I mean, who does that? Who, who no does that? I mean, that, you know, uh, he was he was so entirely aggressive. He was kind of like he reminds me of, uh, the, I guess, the sort of the philosophy that Bill Russell had. Bill Russell. Uh, and if you looked at that interview that I sent you, uh, he talks about how he cataloged in his brain about yes. every player that he'd be going up against in terms of rebounds. And he kind of knew where a guy was going. If When he went up, he knew where he was going to. Yeah, you know where he's going to come down, and all of that. And he had it was like a, it was like a an entire uh, book of these these moves that moves that players made. And and Dennis Rodman, he always kind of knew where you know yeah. when he went up for the ball, he always kind of knew where the ball was going to be and where the guy was going to be. Yeah. You know, in terms of people he was jumping up against. Not many people do that. No. He was incredibly successful with that. Yeah. They hated him. We Chicago hated him when he was in Boston because, you know, Boston was. I mean, uh, Detroit, Detroit was a really yeah. rough, rough team. I mean, they really they beat you up, and so he was good at that too. <laughs> and so uh, I hated know, the Pistons. But when the Pistons played the Celtics, when the Pistons were done with the Bulls, I was for the Pistons. I hated the I hate the Celtics so much. I would root for Detroit, and Dennis Rodman would cover Larry Bird. He wasn't afraid. He just no, he I wasn't just afraid. Profound love and respect for Dennis Rodman as a basketball player. He's a little flaky when it comes to politics. No, he's you know, a little but, flaky, but he, you know. I, there was there was one uh, piece I, took, I saw one time in in uh, the highlights where he was going up against uh, Shaq uh, for a rebound, and uh, he he did something. He elbowed him or pushed him or something, and and uh, Shaq turned around and gave him that look. And Dennis Rodman put up put up his hands like, "Oh, whoa! I didn't really mean that." He wasn't he wasn't crazy. Dennis Rodman recognized that Shaq was three hundred pounds and seven foot one. You know what I mean? So, you know what he was? <laughs> passive aggressive. He was classically passive aggressive. So he would intimidate a big man like Alonzo Mourning or Shaq, and they would turn around ready to throttle him. And he's like, "What? What did I do? I am sorry." <laughs> uh, and that was part of getting in their heads. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was incredible uh, at what he did. I, I I agree with that. There's no question about it. I mean, I think that that last three peat with uh with Rodman and with Scotty Pippen as you know the I mean the the nucleus of that team uh, at that yeah. point and uh, I mean that, that's what made it happen yeah oh man both seasons go right around the corner all right Richard Steele uh, before we go on a tangent and talk basketball we're going to close it down uh thank you very much for taking time to come on the show battling the cold 
Uh, and I'm going to miss seeing you at the Jazz Festival many times, which will come up there and uh, introduce uh, acts. And uh, but uh, whatever the great, maybe I'll see you in the audience. Uh, and by the way, the next time we get together, we got to talk about this thing with the bears that you mentioned before instead of them moving to Arlington Heights. But we'll, we'll save that for another time. We'll save that for the next time. I got to put you on the schedule once a month. Richard Steele, the real deal, uh, Chicago radio legend and a dear friend of the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, thank you very much, Richard, for taking time and coming on the show. Thank you, Ben. All right. That's great. Richard Steele. I also want to thank John Nichols uh, from the nation magazine. Fascinating conversation and thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of all Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. He's back in the saddle, ladies and gentlemen. And as Richard Steele, John Nichols, Dennis Rodman and Vladimir Putin will tell you back home on Alton, they call him Dr. Dean. The D stands for the marvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. It's great to be back, everybody. See you tomorrow.